Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. back to cardiology. So we did a great job together talking about the changing paradigm of cardiovascular disease. We talked about risk factors and let's talk about cardiac imaging. And I definitely want to start off with chest x-rays and let's work our way down. So when we talk about chest x-rays, I mean, the way I look at it, you say shortness of breath, I say x-ray, you got to get one, you know what I mean? Not all shortness of breath has to be the lung, I wish it was, but you say shortness of breath, it could definitely be the heart. It definitely could be, are you anemic? Because what do all those three have in common? Is oxygen. The lungs bring it into us. The heart actually delivers the oxygen and the red blood cells, they carry it. So it's going to be one of those three. So the bottom line point is you're going to get a chest x-ray. So a couple of things specifically focusing on the heart. You know, anytime you look at a chest x-ray, I mean, you want to say things like, is it over-penetrated, under-penetrated? Overpenetrated means everything is going to be dark, 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 black, black, black. If it's underpenetrated, light, 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 white, white, white. And of course, rotation. Because when we talk about is there a widening of the mediastinum, the most common cause is always going to be is it just rotated? It can do that. So you want to look at some common sense things before you start talking about the heart. Also, I wanted to mention is it going to be a PA or AP film. And that really makes a big difference when we're talking about the broad terminology. Is there enlarged cardiac silhouette? Why? Is because if you were to get a AP film, anterior or posterior film, when do I do that? In the ICU. It's a portable film. You know, the the, the X-ray machine comes and they shoot a film that goes from anterior and whereas the cassette is posterior. So it takes the heart and it magnifies it. So the, the heart could appear falsely enlarged in an AP film. But if you do a PA that's posterior anterior, what happens? You go down to radiology, you usually could stand up and you're, and you're against the wall. And where is the cassette? You're holding it right here and the film shoots from the back and it, the image will go to the cassette because you're holding it in the front. So the beam comes from posterior to anterior. That's when you could truly, truly say that the heart looks like it's possibly going to be enlarged. So a couple of side note things. 
So sometimes when you look at a chest x-ray like this, it could matter less if it's going to be AP or BA film. The heart definitely looks enlarged. And now I want to be kind of like micromanaging your terminology. If you want to be specific, we technically can't call it cardiomegaly because sure, the myocardium, the muscle of the heart could be enlarged, but you know what surrounds the heart is the pericardium. And what could be inside there? Yep, could be some fluid. So if you have a pericardial effusion, it could make it seem like the heart is enlarged, you know? So the correct terminology is there is an enlarged cardiac silhouette. So when you say that, it implies that it could be the myocardium and the pericardium. But here, the cardiac silhouette is, appears grossly enlarged over here. So this one is going to be a little obvious. So when we get chest x-rays, it's not only to talk about, you know, is the heart appearing enlarged? There are other classic things that we could look at on chest x-ray in the cardiology section. One of the classics is always going to be coarctation of the aorta. This is going to be individual that is going to have some high blood pressure, right? And there's going to be a discrepancy of the blood pressure from the upper and lower extremities. So I have a picture of some of the coarctation coming up, and we'll go over what those findings can be. Another classic reason we get chest x-rays is if we think there's going to be pulmonary edema. So definitely there are some findings that are classic when someone appears with heart failure. I do have an example of that. So we'll review that in one second. So here's going to be coarctation of the aorta. So when we think of coarctation of the aorta, what is some of the buzzwords? You said it already. I think you saw it in the past slide. It's rib notching. Now, I'll be honest with you, unless I'm looking for it, I'm probably not going to find it because rib notching is a very, very subtle sign. So hopefully you're going to see my little um, pointer over here. But I think if you go down one, two, three ribs and you go across, you're gonna see that there's a little notches in the ribs here, hence the word rib notching. So what does that mean? It's not because the ribs have little indentations in it, but the vessels, the collaterals are gonna be so dilated, you get some shadowing off on the ribs, so it looks like a little notching of the ribs. Um, what are some other classic signs that we can see with coarctation of the aorta? What about the sign of three? And so if you don't know what the sign of three is, another word of that, a name for that is called the omega sign, because you know omega kind of looks like an M, kind of. So maybe we should call it the McDonald's sign. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. So the three sign or the omega sign. So start off with my pointer up here, right by the clavicle. That's one. In the middle is two and three. So it's kind of like three humps. One, two, three. The sign of three or the omega sign. And the way I look at it, the first hump is going to be what? The aortic knob. The middle part is going to be where the coarctation is, and below it will be distal dilation. This is going to be the omega sign, sign of three. All right, here's going to be congestive heart failure, and, and I'll be the first to tell you folks that you cannot diagnose heart failure just based upon the chest x-ray, because if you told me that this is acute eosinophilic pneumonia, if you told me that this is someone who has bilateral PCP, I mean, pulmonary alveolar hemorrhage, I would say yes, yes, and more yes. But when we think about heart failure, a couple things is that usually it's going to be kind of like a bat wing where it will start off central where the pulmonary arteries are, then kind of go peripheral. So kind of like a bat wing. If this turns out to be a PA upright film, that when you are upright, you should not see a lot of markings over here, right? 
But when you see markings going towards the head, we call that cephalization. So cephalization of the markings. So remember, even though there are two broad types of markings, there's interstitial and vascular, truth be told, on a chest x-ray, you really, really, really can't tell what's interstitial and what's vascular when you only look at the chest x-ray itself. It's just kind of impossible to do that. So when we talk about um, other buzzwords, I mean, you can't see it here, but if you have septal lines, you can call those curly B lines sometimes. So you take everything put together, and yes, this is something that's going to be very classic when we talk about uh, pulmonary edema seen in someone who has congestive heart failure. So other things, I'm not done yet, when we talk about classic findings on chest x-ray, it could be findings of a pericardial effusion. Now, truth be told, you can't see an effusion on a chest x-ray, but the shape of the pericardium could give you that classic water bottle-shaped heart. And you know what? I think I have a picture in there, so just bear with me. And of course, another important thing is to look for calcifications. So calcifications around the valves. One of the classic valves we're going to talk about is the aortic valve. And as we get older, you'll get aortic stenosis. So maybe you could see calcifications. You know, calcifications on the coronary on the chest x-ray, well, that's kind of a reach, isn't it? But if we talk about a CT scan, you definitely can see calcifications there. And that is actually going to be one of the things that we use to risk stratify individuals to see if they're gonna be at a high risk for coronary artery disease. And sure, maybe if you have a chronic constricted pericarditis, you may see calcifications around the heart. It's not always, but you know, you do definitely need the history and the physical and all these things put together to help make that diagnosis of constrictive pericarditis. So let's see if we have a couple of images. All right, I told you. When you look at this cardiac silhouette, it looks like it has a water bottle shape to it. And you know, how are we gonna confirm this is a pericardial effusion? What are you gonna order? That's right, you're gonna get transthoracic echo. Uh-oh, bonus, bonus case, chief complaint, sudden onset of chest pain, all right. So even though you and I know EKG is gonna be the first thing they order, Let's play the x-ray game. Here's the x-ray. All right. Um, usually I have all my fellows and residents around me, but I don't. I got the computer screen. Does anyone want to interpret this chest x-ray? <laughs> all right, I'll do it. So I think the key thing to remember for your board exams is that they're not going to give you these brain busters, something that's really subtle. You know what I mean? I think you know rib notching is way too subtle. I mean, what do we see here, everyone? Widening of the mediastinum. So if you get chest pain with widening of the mediastinum, you want me to say some more buzzwords, right? It has a tearing sensation to it. It radiates to the back. And if you mention all these things, you're thinking about what? Dissection. So you can't really confirm it based upon this. You do need to order more tests, you know? Just for the purpose of this lecture, we got a CT scan. And I got three cuts. One, Two, three. So when we look at this, what, well, we'll go straight for diagnosis first. You know what I mean? Boom, what is the diagnosis? So this is definitely gonna be an aortic what? Dissection. So what's the main problem with the aortic dissection? You have a true lumen and a false lumen. And when you look at the aorta over here, this is the ascending, this is the descending. Which one is gonna be the true lumen? 
is it going to be the, this big old area over here? No. The true lumens is really, really tiny area over here, and it's getting squashed. Why? Because the false lumen is pushing it. And because it's pushing the true lumen, you're going to hypoperfuse organs, and you're going to get what? Organ failure. You know what I mean? So you can see it here. You can see it down here. And if I were to ask you, when we talk about aortic dissection, there are two types, right? There is a type A and a type B. I'll let you look at it one more time. One, two, three. Is this a type A or type B dissection? Yeah, this is type A, because it definitely involves the aortic valve, the aortic arch. This is a type A dissection over here. Very good. So I want to talk a little bit about this because this is actually very, very relevant for the board exams. So when we talk about treatment, you know, there's definitely um, the questions you get on the medicine portion of the boards is how we treat a type B dissection. I know I showed you a type A. So what are going to be some of the overlaps between A and B? Both when you want to have blood pressure control. You want to lower the blood pressure and you definitely want to control the heart rate. You want to lower it. But that happens regardless if it's A or B. If it's type A, it's usually not a good medicine board question because there's only one person who needs to be involved. That's going to be cardiothoracic surgery. You should get them involved right away. And there are many things that they can do. Uh, if it's a type B, you know, you may want to get interventional cardiology involved. Medicine may actually have a role in here. Why? It's because after you control the blood pressure and heart rate, first line therapy for a type B dissection is something called a thoracic endovascular aneurysm repair. We call that a T-bar for short. So let's talk about T-bars because that would be a great answer for a type B dissection on the board exams. So traditionally, when you want to uh, you know, treat an aortic dissection, we do a vascular graft. Here's the aneurysm over here. And remember, whose law do we talk about when we talk about wall tension and rupture? It's the law of Laplaque, very good that as the radius increases, wall tension increases, so it's gonna be pushing out on the aneurysm. So what you're gonna do, you're gonna clamp here, clamp here, you're gonna chop out the aneurysm, and you're gonna place a what? A graft and connect both ends. That's the classic surgical way we could do things, but it is invasive, it does have a lot of side effects. So by placing a stent in here, a T-var, you don't have to be as aggressive, and it has really, really good outcomes. Obviously, there are some finer points that you need to think about. And the main reason why we only do this for type B is because you're not going to put a, a graft in here for a type A. It's going to block off the arch and all the vessels that are, are going to be feeding. So when we talk about a type B dissection, the one that's going to be medical, um, what is going to be one of the main neurological bolded red problems that we see in both a traditional graft or a T-var? And the answer is, yeah, you can get paralysis. Yeah, it's scary. But you're going to die from, you know, this dissection anyways, you know. But the second question is, why do you get paralysis? And it's all about knowing our anatomy, knowing the vessels. And off the aorta, we're going to have accessory vessels that are going to be leading the aorta and perfusing the spinal cord, perfusing the spinal cord. So you can imagine when you pop in a stent over here or you pop in a graft, you're not going to be able to perfuse the vessels that feed the spinal cord. And there is one vessel, you know, that 
feeds two thirds of the spinal cord. And the name of that artery, that vessel is gonna be the artery of, I hope I pronounced this right, Adamkowitz. We'll see, I have it there, but let me see if my memory serves me correctly. So the answer is yes, you definitely worry about you know, paralysis. And when we talk about these accessory vessels, they're gonna be called the intercostal arteries. So here's the aorta going all the way down. And notice you see all these intercostal arteries are gonna be feeding what? The spinal cord. But there is one artery and it's called the artery of, I got it, Adamkowitz, which actually supplies two thirds of the spinal cord. So you can imagine, look the, inside the lumen of the aorta, you put in a stent or a graft, you're not perfusing any of this. So this is definitely one of those uh, risks and benefits that we're gonna talk about before getting consent to do this procedure. So no one wants to be paralyzed. So how do CT surgeons and interventional cardiologists prevent the paralysis when placing a T-bar for a type B aortic dissection? What are things we can do? The answer is, yeah, we put a lumbar drain. Very good. Look at this lumbar drain that we put in there prophylactically. So you're going to ask me why. It's because of the pressure gradient. So what happens is, I'm going back a little bit, if you put an LP drain over here, if you start draining off a little spinal fluid, there's going to be less pressure in the areas of the spinal cord, so it doesn't take as much pressure pushing the blood flow from the intercostal arteries to the spinal cord. So what do we do? We just take off a little CSF per hour to help out with perfusion. And we do something else called permissive hypertension. Because now that we secured the dissection, we can let the blood pressure go up a little bit more because what's going to drive perfusion over here is going to be blood pressure in the aorta and decreased pressure where? in the, Around the spinal cord. So these are going to be triple star high yield pearl questions for the board exams. I hope you guys like those two. I think I got one more. So this is always, you know, for some reason, even though it's, you know, we're talking about medicine, they still talk about motor vehicle accidents. They somehow just still make the board exam somehow. And, you know, when we talk about aortic dissection, I know that a classic vignette is someone who comes, who has a car accident and even if they're wearing their seatbelt, always wear your seatbelt, that they have a traumatic motor vehicle accident and they get an aortic dissection. And you know what? Almost all these traumatic aortic dissections happen in one place. Where do they happen? Yeah, they happen right here. They happen just distal to the left subclavian artery, which is right here. So my question is, why? Why do they always happen right there? And and oh, I pressed the button. Someone like used the, some kind of Jedi mind trick and pressed the button, you know? So the answer is, is because of something called the ligamentum arteriosum. Because that part of the aorta is actually what? It's gonna be secured. So you can imagine if you're securing the arch right here, the distal part is gonna be kind of a fulcrum. It's gonna be swinging because you're actually attached right here. So the ligamentum arteriosum is actually a remnant from something called the ductus arteriosus. And usually the ductus arteriosus is gonna what? Close, if it doesn't close, we call it a what? A PDA, a patent ductus arteriosus. So once it closes, it forms the ligamentum arteriosum right here. And that's why it's 
the aorta and distal aorta swinging. That's why we get lots and lots of those dissections there. That was actually on the board exams not too long ago. It's kind of making you jog your old anatomy memory right there. So I hope you enjoyed that quick pearl right there. So let's go on with a question. We have a 55-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-week history of progressive shortness of breath. She has now had difficulty walking up two flights of stairs, medical history significant for asthma and mitral valve prolapse, and there is some moderate mitral regurgitation. Her last echo was around four months ago, and it showed a mild left atrial enlargement, a normal left ventricle size, and thickness. The patient had an ejection fraction of 65%. Her only med is uh, albuterol that she takes and held as needed. So she has pretty much like a mild intermittent asthma. All right. On exam, patient's afebrile, normal tensive, non-tachy, non-tachypnic, BMI is 27. Cardiac exam reveals a grade three out of six, systolic murmur going to the axilla. You know that is classic for what? MR. It, it's holosystolic because it goes both ways during systole, through the aorta and through the mitral valve. And lungs are clear to auscultation. They do an EKG. It shows normal sinus rhythm. So what are we going to do in this 55-year-old three-week history of worsening shortness of breath? Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? Well, they have a lot of things to do. So which ones would you just cross off the bat? Um, I don't think this is... Uh, an, you know, a, an, an arrhythmia problem. I don't think we need to do 24-hour continuous, you know, ambulatory monitoring here. So I would take off B. You know, as much as I love a pulmonary answer, is there anything in the vignette to make me think that her breathing is getting worse? You know, no. So for right now, I'll take off spirometry. It hurts me a little bit. Is this going to be kind of an angina-type workup where we need to do a stress test for chest pain? It doesn't really jump out at me just yet, so I'll take off A. So I really do feel that in someone with known heart disease where, you know, it had an echo four months ago, and now things are getting a little bit worse, you know, I really feel you should look at the heart. I mean, he has known heart disease. And of these two choices, what do you think is the best way to do it first? Should we do conscious sedation and ram a esophageal probe <laughs> down, you know, down the esophagus? I'm going to go with no. You know, do simple things first. This is a classic example on the board exams question. You would do a transthoracic echo. Echo is going to be such an important test when we talk about evaluating patients, both in a critical care sense and in a cardiology sense. So let's start talking about echoes. So when we talk about echoes, you know, you're first going to ask me, are they going to give me echoes on my boards? The answer is, it's kind of going that way, you know. I've already heard that they are giving echoes because it's not just critical care doctors using echoes, it's cardiologists, it's internists, people are using it at the bedside. I think some of my fellows actually carry portable echoes. I mean, where do they get the money for that? It's not the fellowship program, but I don't know. Anyways, so when we talk about these echoes over here, um, they come in two different modes. There is an M mode, and M stands for motion, M stands for measurements, and we'll go over this mode together. And of course, there is the classic 2D mode when you're going to look at the images itself. There's definitely a button you can press if you like to do Doppler sometimes. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, measuring velocity and how bad is the stenosis or regurgitation, we'll consider doing Doppler in some cases. 
And, you know, I'm going to say this now and I'll say it a thousand times, you know, that yes, there's a transthoracic and a transesophageal and every one of us has memorized the indication for doing transesophageal. You know, I list them, a lot of them here, atrial thrombi, prostatic valve function, vegetation, but regardless, on your board exams, in probably most cases clinically, you should always do a transthoracic echo first. And you should only order the transesophageal if it's gonna change your what? Your management, then go ahead and do one. The reason why I get so passionate about it is that I recently had someone in the medical ICU where they did a transesophageal echo and you know what? They did rupture the esophagus and it's just, it's not easy to repair. And in fact, sometimes when it's very high up, you know, close to the cervical spine, they don't repair it. And it leads, it leads to feeding tubes and it's such a big thing. So, I mean, order one if it truly, truly is going to change your what? Management. Always start off with transthoracic echo first. So we mentioned about Doppler, you know, I don't want to get too detailed into it because it's not going to be relevant for your board exams, but Doppler could come in continuous Doppler, color Doppler. We've used that quite a bit to see if it's an artery or vein. And let me just say this now, you know, red does not mean artery and blue does not mean vein. It's just the way the flow is going. I just wanted to say that. There's also something called a pulse Doppler. So let's go over some of the classic views of the heart, you know, and if, if I'm getting too detailed on that, we'll probably take a little break to catch our breaths, then we'll continue with this. But I would say one of my favorite views to, to start with is going to be the parasternal long axis view of the heart. This is the one that we could get in most individuals. If I were to give a board question, this is the view that I would be thinking about. So if you wanted to get the image, you know what I mean? The dot is going to be where the probe is. It has a little indentation on the probe. And it's going to be facing what? The right shoulder. It's going to be facing what? The right shoulder. Almost all the time when you get most of the views, the probe is going to be facing the left shoulder. But this one faces what? The right. And what you want to do is kind of get this image up here. This is a great image. And they compare this to what the cartoon is showing. So in this parasternal long axis view, here's your left atrium. Here's going to be the mitral valve. Here is going to be the left ventricle. Here's the right ventricle. Here's the septum. Here is the LVOT, the left ventricular outflow tract. And here's your aortic valve going to the aortic arch. So when you look at it uh, under the 2D mode, you can see left atrium. Here's the mitral valve. I always say the mitral valve has two leaflets, the anterior and posterior. On this view, I always say that this one will be the anterior because it begins with the letter A and A likes to be next to the aorta. So maybe that helps you. This is the posterior. This is the left ventricle here. And this is a great view when you want to look for pericardial tamponade. This is a great view when, when you want to look at injection fraction. This is a great view when we talk about, you know, people who have hokum, which is going to be hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. There are so many good views you can look at here when we get a parasternal long axis view of the heart. And let me just take a quick peek over here. Um, yep, we're going to be going to short axis, but I could already tell that people want to catch up on their notes because I really went to that pretty quick. So why don't we just take a quick break for you folks to catch up, and then we'll start off with the parasternal short axis view of the heart. I'll see you soon. All right, so let's continue talking about echoes. So right now we're going to talk about the parasternal short axis view. So 
and looking at the picture of how we obtain the image, you already just got the long axis. Just take the actual probe and turn it. And look at the dot right here, the green dot. It's pointing where? To the left shoulder, to the left shoulder. And what happens is you get this wonderful view. We're looking at the cartoon over here. You're going to have the right ventricle, and it really shows the right ventricle what it is. Very thin wall compared to the left ventricle. And you're going to see the symptom really well over here. And this is going to be a great view when you're kind of tilting up and down to get some of a fish mouth view to look at the mitral valve opening and closing and opening and closing. You can get a good view with the papillary muscles over here. So, and you can get a good estimate of um, the ejection fraction when you look at this. So this is gonna be a parasternal short axis view of the heart. <clears throat> and while you're there, there's also gonna be another sub view called the parasternal short axis which is gonna be the aortic and PA view. And sometimes when you're there, you may get a view of the right ventricular outflow track, and you might be able to get a, what they call the Mercedes-Benz sign when you look at the aortic valve, which is usually gonna be a tri-leaflet valve. And one of the classic images that we see quite commonly when we talk about um, the heart is always going to be the four-chamber equal view of the heart. Even though we love this view for one reason, it actually looks like the heart itself, that it's not as easy to get. Notice that where the probe is, it's going to be down here. And notice the dot is going to be pointing where? Pointing at the left shoulder. And sometimes, you know, it's always difficult when we talk about getting these images. Is it going to be in a medical ICU setting? Or are we talking about an outpatient? If it's gonna be an outpatient, of course, you can maneuver the patient so much easier and make him stay on their left side and lean towards you so they can actually can see the heart nicely. Sometimes when you're in a medical ICU, you're very limited in how to position these patients. So, and also, of course, who is the patient? Can you get the probe to image in between the ribs? It's sometimes harder than you think. So when you do get a nice apical, uh, four chamber apical view, it kind of looks like the heart, so it's nice. And this is gonna be the left ventricle. This is gonna be the left atrium. This is the right ventricle. This is the right atrium. So this is gonna be nice when we start, start talking about what is gonna be the ejection fraction. When we talk about you know evaluating things like mitral regurgitation or tricuspid regurgitation, this is a great view of that. This is a four chamber apical view of the heart on echocardiogram. And sometimes while you're looking for the four chamber, you might say, oops, there is a two chamber view by accident. And it does happen. So this is gonna be the LV and the LA. And this is one of the most practical views, especially in the medical ICU. Why? It's a sub xiphoid view. One thing that stinks about this view is that um, it does kind of hurt a little bit. It's gonna be right under the xiphoid. You really gotta push down sometimes and it may not be pleasant. Look at the probe birds it can be pointed to, the left shoulder once again. This is a four-chamber view. This is a four-chamber view right here. And the reason why I say this is very practical being an ICU doctor is because during a code situation, when someone's coding nowadays, you'll be surprised. We have an ultrasound team that comes up to evaluate all these different hemodynamics. Is it a pericardial tamponade? Is it this? You know, and of course, you don't want to interrupt CPR. The CPR is the most important. So this is something you could do is uh, look at this view of the heart. Really good to detect pericardial tamponade when you're looking at this view. 
And when you're here looking, what you see, you see the, the left atrium, left ventricle, right atrium, right ventricle. So <clears throat> this is a sub-sideboid view. Also, what can you do with this view is take the probe and you kind of just make it perpendicular. And by making it perpendicular, you could actually evaluate the IVC. Now, obviously, there are some limitations of IVC, but it's a one of the many parameters that you could look at to see if the patient's volume overloaded or not. So I did mention about the M mode. So when you actually look at your ultrasound machine, there is the letter M, you press it and you're in M mode. And I always say M stands for motion, M stands for measurements. So when up here you see a traditional 2D view, and this is gonna be a left ventricular pair, uh, 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 long axis view of the heart. And when you see this long axis view, what happens is let's say you wanna measure the thickness of the ventricular walls, you would press M mode. And what happens is the cursor would be exactly where you see the cursor here, you would see right here, and time is going across. This is time going across. So what happens is you see systole, diastole, systole, diastole, systole, diastole. And you notice here on the y-axis, this is gonna be measurement in centimeters. So what you can do is measure different things, measure thickness. And at the same time, it's over time, so it's detecting motion. So this is gonna be the M mode. <clears throat> you know, I kind of forgot that this, uh, this picture is over here. So this always brings back some fond memories, kinda. Um, does anyone know on this echocardiogram view what we were looking at here, anyone? Well, you know, if you don't know, the pathology is right here, and this turned out to be a, uh, a pericardial tamponade. It, it, it did, and the story is, you know, I won't get you all the details, but, you know, I just got my, my critical care board certification. I was so happy, and in my hospital, we had a step-down unit, and the way we used the step-down was that, you know, if there are patients that were sick, but not sick enough to be in the ICU, they would kind of go to the step down, we would round on them the next day, you know, or later and, and see if they're appropriately uh, placed. So we had a patient who came in, had some lung cancer and was having some shortness of breath. And we just kind of assumed, or the, the working diagnosis at the time was some kind of pneumonia. Patient had some low blood pressure. Patient was like, you know, maybe some early sepsis of anything, you know. But anyways, uh, the next day, you know, I was rounding to see how the patient was doing with my fellow. And all of a sudden, there was a code. And of course, what do you do? You do CPR. Lots of CPR, of course. It, it was a PEARS. So what do we give? Lots of epinephrine. It's not coming back. So of course, we think of other causes. Since we're in a step-down unit, there was uh, an echo that was an ultrasound that was available. And we had this view and we see this. And of course, this turned out to be a pericardial effusion. Patient was in tamponade. That's why the blood pressure was very low when the patient wasn't coming back. So of course, um, if someone is coding and you know they have a pericardial tamponade, how, what is the next best step in net management? Of course, you want to drain it. And, you know, at the time, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, how many pericardiosynthesis have I done in the acute setting? I'll, I'll tell you, the answer is uh, zero. So all of a sudden, you know, I'm all right, 
I, they were like, this is great. Let's do a pericardiosynthesis. And we're like, well, who's going to do it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Who can do it? Have you tried one? Have you, you know? And all of a sudden they were, they were looking at me and they're like, well, look at your name tag. And I'm like, what does my name tag say? And they're like, it says attending doctor. And I'm like, oh, so I guess I'm going to do this procedure. So anyways, you know, I, I'm getting everyone to get set up to do this. We use a thoracentesis needle. It's an emergency situation. And I'll never forget that, you know, all the nurses in the room started doing this. Come in. Come in, everyone. Teaching case. Teaching. So all these, like, people were, like, watching me do this procedure, you know. So anyways, um, how did we do it? You take it ultrasound guided. You press down hard subxiphoid. You point to left shoulder, and you take the uh, – thoracentesis needle and you go underneath the probe pointing to the left shoulder so, and, and you have to pray first don't forget that and so I got some flashback and I trained so this is what I got so number one did I drain the pericardial effusion the answer is yeah and so what what, what are all these little I don't know hyperechoic dots that we see over here you know they're only on the right side of the heart this is a you know, nothing on the left, you know. So the answer is, you know, those are epinephrine. Those are medications. Like, you know, when you're pushing the meds, and why are they going to be in the right side of the heart? Because even after I joined the heart, it didn't beat by itself. So because the heart wasn't beating, what do you have to do? CPR. So we continued CPR, and look what happened. It left. So, you know, what happened to the patient? Yeah, you know. He passed away. I mean, I'm not going to tell you a lie. I mean, it, it's really sad. Most of these patients do very poorly. But I'll never forget, you know what I mean, that uh, these, these images and that uh, situation. So let's talk about MugaScan. So I put this here because on many board reviews, they always talk about the MUGA, you know what I mean? And I think in somewhere, someone insists that this is going to be the most accurate way to figure out what cardiac output is. And I'm not here to, to bag on it and say no. I just really want to say one thing, which is a second bullet point. It's a time-proven yet dated nuclear medicine test, you know. So when we talk about a MUGA scan, it's a multi-gated acquisition scan. It has other names to it over here that I'm not going to read to you. But essentially, how do you do the scan is that you need a radioactive marker and you inject it into the bloodstream of the patient. And these, per se, tag red blood cells you know, they go into the patient's heart and you need to put them under a gamma camera and you kind of measure the percent of these tag red blood cells are leaving the heart to get an estimate of cardiac output. I mean, it sounds great, but it's just not what? It's just not practical. It really isn't. You know, nowadays, if you want to know how the heart is doing pretty quickly, what is the most simplest non-invasive way to get that information? Just say it, transthoracic echo. When I think about MUGA scans, I don't know about right now, but the people used to, who actually ordered it when I was in training would be oncologists, go figure, because they were giving medications like doxorubicin, and they really wanted to make sure, we know that's cardiotoxic, they really wanted to make sure the heart, what was the baseline, was there any type of damage to the heart, or wasn't functioning well, because they would actually change the medication that affects how they manage their patients. But nowadays, I can be honest, I have not come across a MUGA scan in quite some time. If you come across old board review books and say it's the most accurate way, I'm not doubting that. It's just not practical. It's time dated. So now we're going to go to one of my favorite topics in the whole world, 
which is gonna be stress testing. But before we go into stress testing, just take one quick second to catch up your, your notes and I'll be right back. So now that you got your notes all squared away, let's talk about a very important part of your boards, which is stress testing. So uh, I'm gonna walk through this together. I know there's like 20 million arrows here pointing in all directions. So let's just go through this. So when we talk about stress testing, we're gonna, I'm gonna have a talk called chest pain. And in my chest pain talk, we will talk about who gets stress testing, but I'll give you a little preview right now, which is when someone comes in for chest pain, you know what to get first, right? It's gonna be an, an EKG. And if that EKG is unremarkable, you're probably gonna end up getting some troponins, right? That's always gonna be the most important cardiac marker. And if those are negative, well, you really have to figure out why is this patient having chest pain? And the way you do that is based upon the history and the physical. It just is, you know? And when we talk about the physical exam and the history, what are some important things to note is how did they describe the chest pain, especially on a board exam? Do they describe the chest pain as pleuritic? If the chest pain is pleuritic, well, come up with your differential that starts with the letter one, P. What do I mean by that? P4, pleural effusion. P4, pneumothorax, pneumonia pericarditis. So think about all uh, the different P's that you can have there. So, um, and the other thing you want to look at is, is the pain reproducible? If it's reproducible, you think of what? Things like, ow, costrochondritis. That's not going to be the most important thing. But remember, I will say this. Is it possible that someone could have a pleuritic chest pain and it be cardiovascular? The answer is Yes, but not really on the boards. Is it possible that someone has a reproducible chest pain and it is cardiovascular? The answer is yes, but not really on the board exams. So, and after you go through a lot of the cardiovascular uh, causes of chest pain, don't forget non-cardiovascular such as what? Gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD. We talked about what? Heartburn. So you wanna have a broad differential diagnosis. And of course, if you go through all your differential, you order all the appropriate testing and everything is negative, well, the patient's gonna just ask you point blank, so what caused my chest pain, you know? And that's when you really have to say, is it truly the heart or not, you know? And that's when I think stress testing really plays a big role. And most of these patients will be in the emergency department and they have a negative workup for everything else. And should that stress test be an inpatient or outpatient? And most of the time we do it, what? As an outpatient, most of the time. Because, I mean, they're already had a negative EKG, the troponins were negative, they're pretty much gonna do, what? Nothing until they get that stress test, in most cases. So that's when I think about doing the stress test. We're gonna have other questions about stress testing when we talk about chest pain coming up, but now that you've decided that you want to do a stress test, there are two main questions you have to ask. Should I do exercise or should it be chemical? And by default, what is always going to be your answer on the board exams? Exercise. You always have to do an exercise uh, stress test. They have to prove to you that they can't do it. So when is exercise stress test uh, 
not going to be the answer? Well, number one is if they can't reach their predicted heart rate. And you're going to ask me, how do you know what their predicted heart rate is going to be? Well, remember when we used to go to the gym before COVID-19, you know, and we're doing some elliptical? Well, we try to get to our target heart rate by saying 220 minus your age. 220 minus your age, you want to get around 80% of that is going to be your target heart rate. So if they can't reach their target heart rate, well, you know what? That means they have to get a what? A chemical stress test. So you want to make sure of that first. And of course, if they can't exercise, you know what I mean? They're going to do chemical. And remember, when we say exercise, everyone always thinks that it's going to be treadmill. It doesn't always have to be the treadmill. Sometimes they'll ride the bicycle, you know, and for some reason, they don't have any legs. They could do what's called a cycle ergometry. So they could do this, they could do bicycle, they could do treadmill. There's so many different things you could do, but you have to make sure they can hit their target heart rate. So now that you've determined that they could exercise, that's always your default answer on the boards, you gotta combine the exercise with some way to realize that there's gonna be stress in the heart. And what are the three main things that we combine with exercise? It's either gonna be an EKG, echo, or a nuclear. And how do you know which one to pick? Well, it depends on the patient. So when you not wanna pick an EKG, I know when you read all these review books, they're gonna say, if they're on dejection, if they have left frontal bench block, if they have, you know what I mean? And the answer is, if you have any baseline abnormalities on EKG, then you can't really do an EKG because you need to look for those changes. So baseline abnormalities mean no EKG. When do you not want to do an echo? And we kind of mentioned this earlier, which is, you know, it depends on the body habitus. And, you know, anytime I say BMI, people always think it's obese. And that's not the case. That sometimes, you know, what is the air, that what is the um, enemy of ultrasound? Air and bone, air and bone. So you can imagine, let's say it's one of my patients who has really, really bad emphysema. It's going to be hard to image the heart. And when you're very kytectic, low BMI, you're not going to have enough space in between the ribs. We call that the footprint. So it really depends on the body habits itself. Very elevated BMI and sometimes a very low BMI. And the reason why you can't do it is because you got to flip them for the echo. They do some stress and you got to do the echo. And the last is going to be nuclear. Now, nuclear is what you kind of want if you got the good insurance, right? Nuclear is going to be prognostic but it's always gonna be the most expensive and time consuming. So once you get a board question, you're gonna determine if it's gonna be chemical or exercise, your default is exercise. And what is always gonna be your default pairing for the board questions? It would be an exercise EKG, exercise EKG. That's what every insurance wants you to pick right there. But if they can't exercise, you're gonna do a chemical. And when we talk about picking a, the chemical, there are a bunch of choices out there. I put the big three in green. You could pick dobutamine. And I kind of combine these two together, adenosine and dipyridamol. And of course, way in the top, I put regatasun, which is goes by the brand name Lexascan. And I know a lot of people use this over here, uh, use this a lot. I'll say it now so I won't forget. You know, Lexascan is an adenosine agonist. It's an adenosine agonist. So when we talk about, you know, which chemical do you want to use? Well, it really depends upon the side effects of the patient. So what do I mean by that? So dobutamine, how does it work? It's a beta-1 agonist. 
So when you not want to use dobutamine, if they're going to be tachycardic at baseline, if they have a lot of tachyarrhythmias at baseline, I probably wouldn't use dobutamine. When we talk about adenosine and dipyrinamol, well, both these are vasodilators. So I always wonder how do these drugs stress the heart if they're vasodilators? They actually induce something called a coronary steel syndrome. So because they dilate, they suck blood away from the heart. It steals blood away from the heart, inducing a coronary steel syndrome. And the reason why I kind of want you to kind of pair these up together is because they kind of have the same side effect profile. By the way, dipyrinamol is also known as Persantine. That's the brand name. And what is, who shouldn't get this? Yeah, people who are coughing, people who are wheezing, because it induces a bronchospasm. I don't mind if they have COPD or asthma, as long as they're well controlled. But they're wheezing, coughing, not well controlled. These cause a lot of bronchospasm in these patients. Um, we thought that's why Lexascan would be, you know, the best thing ever, is because hopefully it wouldn't cause a lot of those bronchospasm. But the data isn't great for it. And but what is, you know, the ones we use are going to be based on the side effect profile. And once again, once you decided to use one of these, you have to pair it with something down here. And the three classic things we pair it with are going to be EKG, echo, and nuclear, these three. And notice they had the same limitations. So you say, when do you not use EKG? Baseline abnormalities. Echo, body habitus. Nuclear, it's great because it's prognosis, but it's expensive and time-consuming. And I know a bunch of cardiac fellows are going to be watching this or pre-cardiac fellows. And yes, there are stress testing where we combine it with MRI. And one of the hot topics right now is combining a stress test with a PET scan. So we do that. And I would definitely say as someone who has a lot of passion for sarcoid, I use a lot of MRI and PET scan in making a diagnosis of uh, cardiac sarcoid on a side note. But this is going to be how the main way of my weapons of how do I answer questions about stress testing on the boards. So let's see how you folks do. All right, here we go. Oh, you know, I thought it was a question right away. It's coronary steel syndrome and everyone paid attention. What do we say that is? If that's how adenosine and things like dipyrinamol work is that it dilates inducing a steel away from the heart. So at least you have the answer in all my words there. So you can pause the video and read it if you'd like to. So now let's do a, nope, I messed up again. Here's a picture. So we talked about doing an exercise. It doesn't always have to be a treadmill over here. Look at, look how happy this guy is. He's doing his Bruce protocol. We could do bicycle or we could do ergometry. And this is what it looks like when you have a nuclear perfusion scan is that, you know, you have the resting images and these are always going to be, this is of the left ventricle and look at the perfusion you get here. And then we do a stress and look at the lack of perfusion during a stress. So this is how we interpret a stress test and nuclear perfusion test. Finally. All right. So we have a 60 year old man is evaluated for chest pain of four months duration. He describes the pain as sharp, located in the left chest with no radiation or associated symptoms that occur with walking one to two blocks and resolves with rest. Occasionally, 
the pain improves with continued walking or occurs during the evening hours. He has hypertension. Family history does not include cardiovascular disease in any first degree relatives. His only medication is the calcium channel blocker amylodipine. On exam, he is afebrile, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, BMI is 28. No carotid breweries are present. There's a normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs are heard. Lung fields are clear and distal pulses are normal. Ah, they put an EKG here. Let's take a look at it. You know, I always say that when I get an opportunity to teach EKGs, I go through the rate, the rhythm, the access, the intervals, and morphology. Of course, sometimes these EKGs come up when you only have a few seconds left on the clock. It is a timed exam. So take a one look at this. And what's the question? Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? So in this individual, you definitely want to, he would be a good candidate for a what? A stress test. I don't think going for coronary angiography would be the thing to do just yet. I don't think an echocardiogram by itself would give you the answer that we're looking for. So it comes down to what type of stress test do you want to perform? So can this individual exercise? And I believe it says that he is walking, you know, all the time. And so the answer is he needs a what? Exercise stress test, not a, a chemical induced. So the answer here is going to be what? D. Outstanding. This is amazing. So you want to do another question? Let's see. How about this 60-year-old man is evaluated for chest pain? The patient reports the chest pain is present on the left side of the chest, has a burning quality, is non-radiating, occurs at times with activity, and resolves rest. It has been present intermittently for four months. Uh, he has also noted episodes of similar pain in the evening and after eating dinner. Other than occasional chest pain with exertion, he can walk without limitation. His medical history is significant for hypertension. His only medication is hydrochlorothiazide. On exam, a febrile, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic. BMI is 30. His general physical exam is normal. They do an EKG as they should. Um, sinus rhythm, there's some non-specific one millimeter ST segment changes in the anterior and lateral leads. There are some findings consistent with left atrial enlargement and they meet the criteria for LVH on the EKG. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? So in this patient, would you do a coronary calcium score? The answer is no. We're going to talk about that shortly, but remember that's going to be a test that we use for risk stratification. This is not someone who's acting active chest pain. We're not going to risk stratify. This person needs to have further evaluation. Uh, the question becomes, can he exercise or does he need chemical? And I think in the vignette it says he's a big fan of walking, which says we're not going to do what? D. So what do we need to do on him? Should he get a nuclear test? Maybe he has really good insurance. Or should he get a very simple EKG? And here, the answer is perfusion. Why? Even though I made that comment about insurance, he can't do an EKG. Why? He has baseline EKG abnormalities. 
LVH, left atrial enlargement, some ST changes to begin with. So by default, he gets a what? Exercise perfusion study, C. All right, let's do one more. I know that a couple of you didn't like that question. It was a little tricky one, wasn't it? How about this 74-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-week history of left shoulder pain and dyspnea exertion? Medical history is significant for COPD, hypertension, and coronary artery disease. She underwent stenting of the mid-left anterior descending three years ago. Because of her lung disease, she has limited exercise activity. Her meds are ACE inhibitor, a hydrochlorothiazide, a statin, aspirin, fluticasone, inhaled steroid, albuterol, and inhaled hypertropion. On exam, a febrile normal intensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, BMI is 29. Her estimated CVP is slightly elevated at eight. I'm not jumping up and down about it. Her cardiac exam reveals a two out of six mid-systolic murmur heard best at the cardiac basis and some late expiratory wheezing heard in bilateral lung fields. EKG shows LVH and some repolarization abnormalities. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? You know, I would say there are a few people that are saying, take this one right to the cath lab. It's not wrong to think that, but if we were to go back and, you know, evaluate her and her symptoms, I think going to the cath lab would be just a little bit aggressive on her, you know? So especially because we're going to be reevaluating the stent, I think that it is reasonable to do a stress test. So when we talk about stress testing, well, which one should we do? Is she going to exercise? The answer is no. It says right in the vignette, she's not uh, unable to exercise. So it's really going to be between A and C because we have to choose what chemical. And I believe here she's going to choose C because she had wheezing bilaterally. So you can't use adenosine. You're not going to use dipyridamol. So this is going to be a dobutamine stress echo makes the most sense of these choices right here? The answer is C. Outstanding. And we already talked about regatison, and I know I, I pronounced that wrong, so don't get on my case. Let's call it a Lexascan, you know? And you know, we tend to see the pairing of what we see in our hospital. I know many people get, you know, a Lexascan nuclear study, and that's why we all should work hard and have good insurance. All right, uh, but the answer is gonna be C. So I wanted to say a few things. So this is what we call a viability study. Now I'm gonna spend some time with this because it is very, very controversial. So what do I mean by that? Sometimes, has, have, has everyone heard of a viability study? Raise your hand. Yeah, some of you, you know. So when do I even think about a viability study? It has to be the vignette where someone comes in with stable angina. You understand? So to have stable angina, you have to have known coronary artery disease and beyond therapy. And usually I think about this study when the vignette is someone who has known stable angina, walks the same amount of blocks, walks the same amount of stairs and gets pain and it stops. They take the same amount of nitro and it goes away. But what happens is because they have pain, you know, their loved ones are like, hey, you should go to the ER, even though it's just like their classic stable angina. They go to the ER, they get the EKG, it shows nothing. 
because if it showed something, we would probably be talking about acute coronary syndrome. They would get troponins, but they would be negative because if they were positive, we'd be talking about acute coronary syndrome. So we have a patient with stable angina known who's having chest pain when they do the, you know, their usual exertion. Well, what is the next best step in the management of this patient? And the classic choices on board exams are going to be, well, should we go to the cath lab, you know, and stent? Or should we um, get a stress test? You know, that's my only choices. Go straight to the cath lab or should we get a stress test? And, you know, the answer is neither. Because if you were to get a stress test in someone with known heart disease, the stress test is going to be what? Positive, no duh. You know, so why would we get a stress test? Um, when you go right to the cath lab, which some people might do, but if I'm not saying it's going to be wrong, you know what I mean, is that what the question becomes when you reperfuse, do you need to know if that myocardium is still viable? And that's where this test called a myocardial viability study kind of has its little niche. Do you want to confirm that the myocardium is viable in an objective sense you know what I mean, before going to the cath lab. So when we talk about a viability study, a couple things. Number one, it looks just like a nuclear study. In fact, you really can't tell the difference. And sometimes when you do a viability study, you may do a little stress on it. So what happens is that you inject with a tracer and this tracer gets taken up by the heart. If it gets taken up by the heart, we call the myocardium viable. And if it's viable, we may use terms like it's a hibernating myocardium because it's like the hibernating bear, it's just sleeping, but it's still alive. Or if it happens acutely, we call it stunned. It's just stunned and that's why it's not working. It's still perfusing, you know what I mean? But I'll be the first, I talk to a lot of my buddies who are cardiologists and they hate the viability study. And they just kind of look at me and say, hey Raj, you know, if someone says I have chest pain, by definition, there's got to be some viable myocytes or else they wouldn't feel pain to begin with. And you really just, you can't argue with them. You know what I mean? Plus they're, they're kind of bigger than me. But I'm like, all right, that makes sense. So on the board exams, I would only pick this if they ask you that they need to have something objective to kind of prove that the myocardium is viable or they ask you what test can you order to see if the myocardium is viable. Then we think about a viability study. So I wanted to mention it to you. And uh, we will talk about this more when we talk about stable angina. So I want to finish off in non-invasive imaging by talking about uh, coronary artery calcification scoring. And does it still have a role in, in practice? I mean, the answer is yes, it does. I mean, we still order that here at my institution. But the background is this, is that as I stated earlier, Cardiologists love prediction models, whether it's a scoring system to predict or whether it's going to be a lab like a C-reactive protein or something like this, uh, calcium scoring. So when do we want to think about calcium scoring is basically the bottom line point is right here in bolded red. Patients have to be what? Asymptomatic. There is no role for ordering a coronary artery calcification score if you're having active symptoms. And the second part is if they're asymptomatic, it's not really going to help out if they're low risk for heart disease because if they're low risk, you pretty much should do nothing. And if they're high risk, 
Well, they pretty much either have a stress test or go to the cath lab, you know, but it's going to be people at intermediate risk. So that's a take home message when you think about it, asymptomatic intermediate risk. But first bullet point, I'll just read it to you. There is no evidence from randomized trials that patients have a better outcome if they get, if they, if the calcifications in the coronary arteries are measured. So there's no mortality survival outcome with this study. So uh, I put some three take home points I mentioned and I put all the studies where this information came from. I already stated that the best patients to use it with are asymptomatic at intermediate risk. I also said that its role is very, very controversial in symptomatic patients. Many patients just ask, why not do CT angiography? Which, you know what? Some cardiologists do that. There was one study from a while back called the Coronary CT Angiography Evaluation for Clinical Outcomes. This was a international multicenter registry called the CONFIRM. And they said prediction by CT angiography was no better than calcification scoring. And once again, asymptomatic patients. So it's a very specific cohort of patients over here. So what are the limitations for doing a coronary artery calcification score? You know, it does not adequately assess the severity of the coronary artery stenosis, okay? And, you know, it's also causing a lot of anxiety because it is a non-contrast CT study. And the more you CT people, the more things you're going to want to find and things you don't. And when we talk about pulmonary together, I'm going to be talking about, oops, I found the pulmonary nodule, which is very good. Well, let me take that back. You just found the nodule. I can't say it's very good. It causes a lot of anxiety. And I wanted to show a couple of images of calcium scoring or calciums in the coronary artery. And you see some over here. This is the LAD. This is the left circumflex. And not only am I showing calcifications on the previous slide about the uh, coronary artery. You can see calcifications around the pericardium. I know earlier in this lecture, we talked about constrictive pericarditis. And the last thing I'm going to mention is cardiac MRI. And when we talk about cardiac MRI, it's, it's, you know, its use is increasing all the time. I am a huge fan of ordering cardiac MRI when we talk about cardiac sarcoid in these patients. Just remember some of the broad things. MRI is very claustrophobic. You'll be surprised how it's not benign. Some people need conscious sedation just to go in there. It's very loud and it is scary. And when you do cardiac MRI, you do need contrast. And the contrast agent is gadolinium. And I do want to mention that you cannot give gadolinium to those who have a poor glomerular filtration rate, GFR. Usually when it's going to be less than 60, we worry about it because there is an entity called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. This was first discovered and described in 2006. I personally have not seen it, but this is a classic thing that nephrologists and cardiologists talk about all the time. And it is a good board question because what do you worry about in giving gadolinium to these patients? We worry about this disorder. And I think I have a picture of an MRI. So this is one of the many reasons why we like to get a cardiac MRI. And look at the great views we have here. We sometimes combine this with stress tests, like I, or, like I mentioned earlier. And with that being said, I have to say I'm very proud of everyone because look what we just accomplished. We accomplished chest x-rays, echo and mugga, stress testing, 
viability studies. Remember, think about this when we talk about stable angina, and we actually talked about CT and MRI. So the next step is talking about the invasive, and we just finished the non-invasive. But before I go, why don't you guys catch up on your notes, and I'll come back and we'll pick up soon.